exposed. With plans in hand, Johnny and Raylene find Anthony Samaroff on a desolate isle planet of Scotlandria. Anthony uses the final piece of the puzzle, as well as exposing the dangers of UBI, to open the ancient communicator and to make contact with the ancient cosmonaut, Ron Paul. Anthony Samaroff co-hosts the Scottish Liberty Podcast and has been featured prominently on other libertarian-themed shows, including The Tom Woods Show, Lines of Liberty, and The School Sucks Podcast. Meanwhile, Johnny's squadron, led by Ground Control, gains a huge victory in the Spooner system by savagely destroying the last of the state's fleet with the help of Jim Bob's savage memes. The liberty has yet to be fully restored. The need for freedom is more powerful than ever. Will Johnny and Raylene make contact with the ancient cosmonaut Ron Paul? Will this be the last fight for our heroes? Stay tuned to hear Anthony Samaroff on episode 49 on Blast Up with Johnny Rocket. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my ring truth, Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. Holla! What's going on, Johnny? (laughs) Guess what? Episode 49. Oh my gosh. Episode 49. Alright? Isn't that amazing? Has it been that long? We've been doing this for a year. Wow. And uh, this is great. And it's it's such an honor to be working with you, Raylene. And uh, our next episode, I mean, the one we have now today is awesome. Yeah. But our next episode is the biggest show we've ever done. And I'm really excited about it. But this episode, what a, what a great way to segue into our 50th show with our current guest. Yeah. You've been talking about this show and how excited you were for weeks. Yeah, yeah. I've been trying to get him on on the show, but we've been having issues, uh, time preference, and all this other crap. So finally, we got it. We did it. We got it. And okay, so you ready? Yeah. Okay. A welfare state by any other name is still a welfare state, according to Forbes. Chicago and Stockton, California, have recently launched proposals for universal basic income (UBI). That idea applies to cities that have gone bankrupt or have unsustainable financial prospects should give us pause. Universal basic income is a periodic cash payment unconditionally delivered to all on an individual basis without means, tests, or work requirement. Everyone gets the same amount of cash, the homeless, and the billionaire. No questions asked. Today, we have Anthony Samaroff, who tackles the subject of UBI and is here today with his new book, UBI For and Against. Anthony Samaroff co-hosts the Scottish Liberty Podcast and has been featured prominently on other Liberty-themed shows, including the Tom Woods Show, Johnny Rocket Launchpad, Lines of Liberty, School Sucks podcast, and many more. His book, Universal Income For and Against, with a forward by Bob Murphy himself, is available on Amazon Kindle. His previous self-help book, Procrastination Annihilation, is free to download at BeYourselfAndLoveIt.com. Anthony brings economic issues at SeenNotSeen.blogspot.com, and his articles have been published by the Scottish Libertarian Party. The Cobden Center, The Backbencher, The Rational Rise, and ActualAnarchy.com. 
Okay, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Anthony It's been a year. Yeah, a year. You must be the most enthusiastic libertarian podcast host out there. Um, I never rival your level of energy and enthusiasm. It's something that can only be aspired to. Oh, well, this is, well, thank you, man. I, <laughs> I just, I love liberty that much. I get excited about it because, mm. you know, it's like I'm like a little kid in a candy store, right? And I want to show right. them. Or actually, it's like a kid at showing tell. Like, look at guys. Look at And everyone's like, whatever, whatever. That's No, nobody gets a joke here. But I'm like, seriously, it's really important to me. This is awesome. And I just get excited about it because this is what moves me. This is what drives me. And this is also what drives Raylene. That's right. You know, like, this is why we do this every week consistently to just spread the message of liberty. Hopefully, we fall on some ears that, you know, maybe have not heard our message. And we can spread it through you know, talking about economics, policies, all this stuff. And I think it's imperative that we get that message out there. So if we're not excited, why should they be, you know? That's a really good way to look at it, yeah. And the kind of way of trying to change the world by being miserable about how wrong everything is, (laughs) um, is certainly not that uh, charismatic a message. You know, it's exciting to actually bring it into not everything's wrong. And yeah, I think even Bernie uh, Sanders knows everything is wrong. But we actually have common sense, amazing solutions that are based on axioms. That's the way to look at it. Uh Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Absolutely. And a third of my book is given over to libertarian alternatives for alleviating poverty, which obviously everyone's always talking about the poor. How are the poor going to get healthcare? How are the poor going to get education in a libertarian society? So I tackle the idea of raising living standards, but not by using the government to raise living standards, but by getting the government out of the way. I should just add, by the way, the book was redrafted for paperback. So it's not just available on Kindle. You said that I really recommend people get the paperback edition because I'm really excited about the new material in there. Nice. Right on, man. Okay, so I'm going to open it up with a basic question. You're doing a book on UBI. What is UBI if anyone's been under a rock for a while? And I always have these, I have the setup questions and then Raylene comes by and like gets these really in-depth questions. But this is a setup <laughs> question. Sometimes, <laughs> You do, you do. I just, I had to do like the introductionary yeah, thing. Yeah. Okay. So you have a new book on the UBI and it's for and against. That's the title of the book. What inspired you to write this book and what is UBI? Right. Well, those two questions. First of all, the universal basic income is... Uh, idea that's been kicking around for quite a while now. And it's the idea that everyone, regardless of who they are, should be entitled to a certain amount of money as a monthly payment from the government. Maybe not a huge sum of money, but enough to make sure that no one goes hungry and that the worst cases of poverty are alleviated, that no one should slip through the cracks uh, of the safety net. And we can go on to discussing what are the, maybe the reasons that might sound compelling to some people, even some reasons that might sound compelling to libertarians. 
as well as why I ultimately reject those reasons. But the reason why I wrote the book, I suppose, is because it's a hot topic right now. And I'm really interested in getting people into libertarian ideas. So I, I thought I right. could... I thought I could piggyback off that, but that's not the only reason. I think it's because if we want to be successful in our libertarian advocacy, we can't just say, you can't beat something with nothing. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, oh, we don't want this, we don't want that, we don't want the other thing. What I wanted to do was give libertarians some ammunition for saying, here are things that, here are solutions that we do have for solving the problems that people are deeply concerned with, such as helping the p people at the bottom of the economic ladder. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to show that we've actually got something up our sleeves, something to offer, that we can offer people hope. Because um, it's very hard to sell a campaign on saying um, no, no to everything. You know, what, what do we stand for? Can we talk about what we stand for, not just what we're against? Beautiful. Um, I, I saw a quote today, and I, I want to read it to you. It said, unconditional basic income is meant to be about entire communities, not just the individuals within those communities. It's about universalism. That's where the bulk of its effects emerge from universal application. It's also mostly about the employed because most members of society are employed. And my question would be, what stops people from quitting their jobs with this mentality? And is the push to promote the herd as detrimental as it seems to be to us? Well, there's two ways to look at that. One is just to say, well, nothing's to stop people from quitting their job. If they're happy to live on a thousand bucks a month or whatever it is, then they can quit their jobs and live on that. The argument that the UBI exponents make is that in contrast to the current welfare systems where we have poverty traps, as we call them in the UK and the US, I think they call them welfare cliffs. People mm -hmm. find that mm -hmm. if they earn over a certain amount of money, they lose all of their benefits in one go and they fall off the welfare cliff. So there's a massive disincentive to work under the current welfare state, which is thought to be alleviated by the universal basic income because whenever you earn any money whatsoever, you get that in addition to your universal basic income. You don't get it instead of your universal basic income. So that is one of, I would say, the most compelling arguments from the UB, for the UBI from a libertarian perspective. The other one is that it's supposed to cut down a lot of bureaucracy because instead of having all these different welfare programs that require administrators and people to check up on who's using and who's misusing it, Everything comes under one bracket. It's just a direct payment into people's bank account and that has less administration costs. My worry with that is that that's just how it starts. Uh, the, the, yeah, the UBI, yeah. in my opinion, mm -hmm. is bound to go arms and legs because people will say, well, I'm a single mother. I should have a higher universal basic income. I live in a city where the rents are much higher than the rest of the US. That's right. I should have a universal basic mm -hmm. income. Now, and some people will say, well, you know, why shouldn't the single mother get, why shouldn't a disabled person get a higher universal basic income? The problem with that is we're back to towering administration costs and large government bureaucracy to check up on who's entitled to what. Okay, well, I have like, me personally, Anthony, I have two things that I have a problem with, with it. One is we're relying on the state, first of all. I mean, me, me being an anarchist, I don't want to rely on the state. So actually in, in creating this program, you're actually giving more authority to the state to actually control people, 
right? I mean, people are going to depend sure. on this, right? So that's scary enough because we already have a welfare state. And then if we add that on top of it, and then the second thing is you're kind of creating a new zero when you're doing this. Absolutely. Like, so, uh, you know what I mean? So like if you're in a, in a neighborhood or whatever and everyone knows that we're going to get $1,000 a month, everybody across the board, doesn't matter, prices go up. And everything yeah. will go up. It's kind of like inflation. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's going to cause a not an yeah, organic, we're all barrels of money. A, what the, what's to stop every, if everybody has an extra thousand dollars and they're living their lives regularly? Then what isn't it basically just the new zero, but with theft? Exactly. Yeah, and especially in a system such as the one we have, where there's severe restrictions on building houses and apartments in many areas. Rent prices are just going to go up, in my opinion, to match the universal basic income. But I think I it's worse. I think it's kind of worse than that when you you talked about the government being involved. This actually creates the situation where everyone is to a degree being paid off by the government. Mm-hmm. It brings everyone into the system, and. The scary thing is it can be taken away at any time. Like you said, we're relying on the government. This sounds to me like the beginnings of a dystopian novel where the government... Uh, 20, 30, 50, however many years down the line says, well, you know, Johnny uh, Adams, he's a libertarian podcaster. He's a subversive. We need to cut off the universal basic income of subversives. They can basically bribe people at any point with fear of starvation uh, and... If you don't comply, into, right, exactly. If you don't comply uh, into being good little citizens. So I think that that would be a great, if there's any fiction writers out there, that would be the great uh, means for a science fiction novel where the government is in charge of the purse strings for everyone and uh, punishes dissidents by stopping their UBI. Well, like, here's the thing, though, too, really quick. It's like they could use stuff like you need to get your national ID card. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't get your national ID card, then you don't get UBI. And so they're going to do whatever they can. You need to have this kind of tracker on you. You need this. And I'm not sounding like Alex Jones. But what I am saying is I'm seeing it. And I, I, I always kind of like, you know, threw Alex Jones away to the side. I think, you know, a lot of it's, you know, entertainment. But there is some yeah. truth in that. And I think there is yeah. truth in what he's saying. Like, we're going to be tracked. We have to be tracked for us to get this universal basic income. So to me, it's like it's a big red flag that we need to depend on the state. The state has total control over us. They can cut us off at any time. You know, like what's even scarier is we were talking about this on the uh, one of our all nighters is regards to uh, the real ID Act and and passports. Mm. It's getting to the point now where the government, if you owe money on taxes or student loans or whatever, they are well, they're proposing the student loans now. You can't leave the country. And that's scary. Right. And they will restrict your movement. And they want and to so, build a wall. So it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. It's getting worse. So like, we're you know, we could bring all this together. And I don't think people are looking at, to me. Now, I don't I, I'm pretty sure you're on our side because you're a libertarian. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's scary to actually depend yeah. on them more than anything. Yeah, Johnny, you're giving them ideas. Hush, hush. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to expand on this and say, don't you think you two men here, would, wouldn't you agree that the, probably the first place they would hit us up with is more regulations through government on businesses about hiring practices, drug testing, um, maybe uh, sure. hireability and, and uh, licensing. And, and so basically, don't you think that they might actually just make it uh, harder to employ people who are outside of uh, the government worship? I would not put anything past them at this stage. I, you know, I think that 
one of the one of the problems is you're going to have a situation where in order to pay for this, you know, why are people going to want to train to be a surgeon or a lawyer when in order to pay for it? I mean, the if you taxed all the trillionaires in the world, all of their money, that yes. would only make a UBI in the United States for about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. That all their trillions of dollars, sorry, all the billionaires billions would only last two and a half years in the USA. So that means you're going to have to tax everyone. You're going to have to tax anyone who's making anything. And I just think people on high incomes aren't going to uh, want to show up or train for years to have those jobs uh, only to be taxed at 70 or 80% or whatever it costs. Mm-hmm. You said about labor laws. One of the arguments from libertarians we hear is, oh, the UBI would be able to replace the minimum wage and the labor laws because people wouldn't need a minimum wage because they are already getting enough money so people could take, so maybe we could use this to cut the amount of government. Okay. That seems exceedingly unlikely yeah, to happen. Impossible. Yeah. That is so, that is such wishful thinking because most of the yeah, UBI man. advocates are on the left and are they hell going to get, going to hold their hands up and say, well, yeah, you give us the UBI so we're more than happy for you to take away our labor laws. In fact, their narrative on history is that the struggle under capitalism since the Industrial Revolution has been by labor against capitalists to get these labor laws passed, to get the minimum wage passed. And they're not going to, that is the progress of history in their opinion. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to turn back and say, well, we got some of what we want, so we're going to get rid of what, no, they're on a constant march for what they see as progress, which in my view is the totalitarian control, economic control of the economy. But in their view, for good, in our view, no good will come out of that. Labor unions have been really slow to get on board with this policy and because they it suggests that jobs may not be necessary. Do you see a future pivot from labor unions because of the rise of uh, Yang and the people like that? I mean, do you see that the, the labor unions are going to actually pivot from how they're not wanting to validate the UBI? Do you have an opinion on that, Johnny? I think she asked you first. Either one of you. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I just think that it's no, I don't think I don't think they're going to pivot at all. You think the labor unions are going to stay anti-UBI because it, it, it does suggest that jobs aren't necessary? Yes. Yeah. Yes. What do you think? Yes. Well, I, I don't know what to expect. I don't have a crystal ball. It's interesting because I was set to debate Andrew Yang in New York in September. And he bailed. Uh, we, yeah, what? he bailed. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got too famous for me, but I got to the <laughs> But it's also the point is that I'm a relatively unknown person compared to Andrew Yang. If he won, it would be expected. If he lost, um, it would be quite embarrassing for him. So the interesting thing is about Yang's platform and his kind of popularity is he's always saying these things like the UBI is going to create jobs. So to take on your, uh, your this is your point about yeah, automation yeah. and labor unions. But here's the thing. How can you create a job by redistributing income? It's like supposing I owned a chair chain of high street stores. I, I should be so lucky. And the government taxed me a hundred million to pay for the UBI. And but people went, it's okay, because people are going to go into your shop and buy your stuff. Right. And that's going to help you create jobs. And it's like, well, no, actually what's going to happen is going to people are going to come in with the UBI and spend a hundred million in my stores, but I've got a hundred million less of stuff 
in my stores, which I now need to replace, which means I can employ less people, not mm-hmm. more. Uh, that means there's less investment in machines, which means there's less goods produced, That's which right. means That's right. supply and demand is the more stuff's produced, the cheaper that stuff is. That's how we're so rich because of capital investment, not because people go out and spend money, because we've invested in machines and factories that make so much stuff, that make the stuff cheaper. The 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 mic that I'm recording on, I could there's no way that I could buy a buy a mic of this quality for the price I paid for it when I first became a podcaster. That's right. yeah. That that's the advance. So um that this is one of my problems with the UBI, with libertarians who say that the UBI is better than the current system, mm-hmm. because they think it's going to make the status go away and say, oh, we've got UBI now. Well, game over. It looks like we've won. Far from it, because the universal basic income will never, ever solve the causes of poverty and inequality. It will only put a Band-Aid over it by chucking some money at poor people. That's exactly Those it's, it's like quantitative easing. It doesn't do anything. Yes. It just solves the problem. It puts a Band-Aid on the problem for that moment. And right. six months down the road, they have to do it again. It's just a so rebranding. It's, a it's, a of, cycle. it's just a rebranding of the broken window fallacy. It's just a broken yeah, exactly. window fallacy. Yeah, it is. It is. So what's going to happen is those poor people are going to take their UBI out to the shop, spend it, and it's going to go back to the rich people. So it's like taking some water from the deep end of the swimming pool, spilling it along <laughs> uh, the way, yes. and putting it in the shallow end. Because the reason yeah. why the reason why people are poor and they're on lower incomes is because either or both they don't have skills or they don't have capital. They don't have skills, which means they can't get a high paying job. And they don't have capital, which means they don't get a passive income from dividends, from whatever companies they're investing and things like that. The only way to bring the people at the bottom up is to have a more skilled underclass. And obviously capitalism also helps because it brings the price of goods and services down. So even if you are in a low rent job, even if you're only earning a few hundred bucks a month, if everything in the shops is cheaper, that few hundred bucks a month is worth more than it was if everything is more expensive. And that's why we need the capital investment, the machines. So until we have an ethos in society that says to people, to poor people, um, you know, your way out of poverty is becoming a more skilled person or your way of, out yes, of poverty is learning the stock market so that you can be an investor, then you're going to become more advanced. And the best way to do that is to get rid of all the labor laws, get rid of the minimum wage laws, because if I'm a business owner, I'm not going to pay someone more than more money than they make me. I'm not going to pay someone um, $15 an hour if I'm training them and they're earning me $0 an hour. But I might pay them $5 an hour. And then when they've got the skills, either they're going to come up to me and say, well, look, I'm making you more money now. You can give me a pay rise or they'll go to someone else who's willing to give them the pay rise. And the left just simply don't seem to understand that our entry-level job is actually the first rung on the ladder. That's right. And that by making it expensive for employers to employ people, they're actually and damaging. Have, and the you have less people in those fields, too, on top of it. So, of course, you know, if I can only afford somebody at, you know, $15 an hour, and I could hire two people who who are willing voluntarily working for seven dollars and fifty cents each. I have now employed two people versus now I have to employ one because of laws. 
which is ridiculous. And there's an accumulative effect of that because it, supposing the government makes it 30% more expensive to hire people, there's not just the person in the shop, there's the person who drug, drove the truck, there's the person who works in the warehouse, there's the person who loaded the stuff off the ship, etc. And all that goes so to actually, the consumer. Right. Yeah, all that goes to the consumer, which means I might get a 30% minimum wage rise, but the stuff in the shop actually becomes more expensive by more than 30% when you accumulate all the people involved. That's right, that's right. And it's ironic because Andrew Yang even mentions in his book that as a business owner, he had to fork out thousands of dollars in and medical payments and mandatory medical payments for his employees, which made it more expensive for him to employ people. And yet he really dodged the question when when leftists ask him on minimum wage. You get the feeling that he knows fine well that the minimum wage is actually often damaging to people in the poor, but he's afraid to say it because it would alienate his face. Yes, because they're Democrats. On the show, we've talked about technophobes, right? And how people, like a lot of this argument is, well, we're going to be replaced by robots really soon. Oh, my God, the end of the world's happening. And, uh, you know, Hazlitt, Henry Hazlitt has talked about this, and he's written about technophobes. This is what he calls them, people who are afraid of new emerging tech that threatens the current occupation. And we've had this consistently throughout history. I mean, people were upset about the machines that make clothing, uh, the lamplighters union because of electricity, all these things. But in reality, yeah. they've they've actually created more jobs than anyone, right? So historically, this argument has been made over and over, but we have more jobs now due to this new emerging technology because now we have to have programmers. We have these people who work on that instead of just a simple lamplighter yeah. or whatever. You have all these other jobs now that are, you know, support for those robots or machines that are doing these jobs, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Innovation that comes in actually just it, it it it's a beautiful swell of the free markets right it is mm-hmm. it's beautiful i think it's awesome yeah do you think the robot argument is false and is it a tactic to just create fear well i'm glad you asked that uh, one the reason why i was offered the debate with andrew yang as uh, gene epstein of the soho forum read my book and he said that the section the chapter in the book on automation was the best thing he'd read on the subject, which I was very flattered and touched by. Because actually what I was trying to do when I wrote that section was collect as many arguments as I possibly could Mm -hmm. on automation in one place. And it looks like I managed to do that. But it's interesting that you mentioned because when the synthesizer was invented, Mm -hmm. musicians' unions went absolutely insane because they thought the synthesizer was going to replace orchestras. Can you believe that? Yeah, so so this has a, been a reoccurring theme. Now, we could get to a point where we're so technologically advanced that when the moment you think of something, it's like replicators in the Star Wars universe where it appears in front of you. And then, okay, then, then maybe a lot of jobs, may, then maybe there won't be so much need for human labor, but there'll be no poverty either because everything will be so abundant that people will be giving it away for free. Now, buying a garment used to be a once-in-a-lifetime affair. Right. People people look forward their whole lives 
to buying clothes. Now the charity shops, the secondhand stores, can get rid of all the sh- all the clothes they have. Absolutely. They can't get they can't get rid of the piles of CDs and DVDs because people don't want them anymore. That could happen with everything. This laptop that I'm speaking to you on could become so worthless that they're giving them away to people in third world countries that are still poor by art by the standards of worldwide, uh, but not by the standards of what we consider poor today. So there's many ways that automation creates more employment. For example, uh, according to Yang's estimates, the automization of trucking will save 168 billion per year. Well, that money gets passed on to the consumer and that means they've got more money left after they buy their goods and services in the Mm -hmm. shops to hire a gardener, to hire a butler, to hire someone to look after the kids, to hire someone to keep granny company, to hire the kids to keep granny company. The interesting thing is, on one hand, we're told, oh, we're out of jobs soon because of automation. On the other hand, we're told, classroom sizes are too large, hospital waiting lists are too long, that we're we're screwing up the environment and we need people to replant all the forests that we cut down for the war effort and on and on, that there's too many old people that are languishing alone in their nursing home, too lonely. Well, we should be celebrating the fact that boring factory jobs are going to be automated because that will free up people's time to become teachers and get this classroom size right. down to and a to be creative and follow their dreams i mean that's the thing you know exactly because you you might not be able to afford to play a gig with your guitar johnny on the saturday night for 20 bucks but right. imagine you but imagine your shopping cost a fifth of what it does now you might actually go and take that gig because twenty dollars would suddenly be worth a lot of money. Right. The only yeah, the only worry is that the the Federal Reserve starts printing out money to pay for the UBI and devalues the currency. Oh, well, right. I really so love this discussion. And I want to point out that Silicon Valley, which is in California, uh, where the tech industry is, has all the startups in America. And they're really promoting UBI. And they're saying that it'll encourage investment in entrepreneurial spirit, especially to combat the automation. But the automation is something they are specifically involved in creating. It's amazing to me that they don't see the in that situation, right? Yeah, and I'd just like to make two examples. When Henry Ford automated the construction of automobiles, he actually had to take on more staff because he made automobiles affordable to everyone rather than just a luxury product. And in order to keep up with the demand, he had to actually take on more staff and he raised their wages. Uh, Johann Norberg, the, um, the economist, wrote a book called progress, 10 reasons to look forward to the future. And he said that in the US Air Force, they concluded that a small MQ-1 drone requires a ground crew of 168 personnel. And that a general said the number one manning problem in our Air Force is manning our unmanned platforms. Mm -hmm. So all these drones are creating more information. They're creating jobs and sorting out that information. You know, we're going to we're going to be we're going to be using these drones more and more to create 
data on everything. There was no such thing as a job as a CAT scan operator or a microchip assembler before <laughs> right, automation. Yes. Yes. So we have no idea what technology will create in terms of new jobs because these jobs don't exist without the technology. Yes. So lots of statisticians to compile the data from our new drones and things like that. Yeah, it's funny though. Like, look at the uh, elevator operators, right? They were pissed off when they had automatic elevators, right? At one point, they were pissed. Like, you, you mean we don't have a job anymore? Yeah, you can just hit the button and we'll go up or down, whatever. Yeah, they might be in luck soon because of all the boring factory jobs and uh, retail outlets are all replaced with machines. That's right. And people might start wanting a, an elevator operator again because they're so rich that they don't know what to do with all their money. They might go, well, we might as well man the elevator and so yeah. that people have someone to chat to when they're going up. <laughs> like maybe, carry your maybe, things out to your car again. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it'll just be a, a social thing. Yeah, who knows? Hey, so make sure you check out America's fastest growing number one pro-liberty radio program, Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is on seven nights per week and on 190 stations coast to coast. And it's pro-liberty every issue, every time. So please check out freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket with Raylene Lightheart, always launching ideas. And we're here with Anthony Samaroff. And we'll be back with Rocket Fire after this commercial break. So stick around. Rock and roll. Hey, listener, chances are some of you are business owners, entrepreneurs, or have a product that you're dying to bring to market. Well, there's something that you all have in common. You need a killer brand, website, and an all-around awesome design to stand out from your competition. Well, I have the solution for you. Invisible Hand Design. We've trusted them with Launchpad Media, Blastoff Branding, Liberty Force, and even my wife's presidential campaign website. They do not disappoint. Yeah, didn't they also do the branding for McAfee in 2016? Damn straight. So if your company's image could use a hand, go ahead and reach out to them. Right. They're even offering Blast Off listeners a 20% discount on their first project. Book your conversation with them at invisiblehanddesign.com forward slash Blastoff. Oh, hell yeah. And we can even do one better. If you work with them, we'll feature the project all over our social media page to give you a launch and a little extra rocket fuel in your engine. Anyway, so that is InvisibleHandDesign.com forward slash Blastoff. Again, InvisibleHandDesign.com forward slash Blastoff. This is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas in your direction. Mr. Anthony Samaroff, and you know what? His new book on UBI, I'm really excited for and against. And again, where can we find this book if people want to purchase it? Yeah, go on Amazon and get the paperback copy. If you want to introduce your friends to libertarian ideas, your leftist friends, this is a really good book to do it with. It really talks to the concerns of people on the left. And I think yeah, I, I'd be I'd be arrogant enough. Why well, I might as well be arrogant enough to say if I was to choose one book to give to leftists on libertarianism, it would be this one. Otherwise, what would have been the point in writing it? So exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you know, no sense preaching to the choir. We already have that covered. Yeah, Rothbard already wrote some great yeah, books. Yeah, we have Rothbard. But you're doing a whole totally you know, different and, thing. Uh, yeah, 
if you are the choir, you'll really like it. I think you'll be nodding along to it. And it does go into depth in the arguments for and against. But if you just got that friend that you that always like, libertarians hate the poor or any other cliche, this is definitely the book to hand to them. And it's nice and short. They can read it in two to three hours, probably closer to three hours. But well, because they're from the left, right? Because... Right. <laughs> oh, God. I'm a jerk. Right. I'm a jerk. Okay, so what we do here on the second segment, it's called Rocket Fire. What we do on Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Mr. Samaroff, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? I, uh, I, I'm a player, man. I'm a player. I'm ready to play. All right, let's go. Question one. How does price formation occur? How does price formation occur? Well, in a market, you have buyers and sellers, and but it's like an auction where you go and you bid for a price, except for there's lots of sellers involved rather than just one seller. And by putting the total bids of buyers against the total bids of sellers, prices are formed, something like that. Very cool. Very cool. Question two. What causes variation of income among ethnic groups? Oh, now that is a complicated question. And you can um, go a little longer if you want on this one, because I, I knew this one was going to be a... This is kind of like an, uh, an empirical question. There might be all sorts. Essentially, what causes the income of any one individual is uh, their skills in the free market, their ability to show up and provide value to an employer or directly to customers if they're self-employed. So I would say what causes differences in income between different ethnic groups would be the aggregate level of skills of those populations. Mm -hmm. It's probably likely that um, some some groups have more skills. Why they've got more skills? Well, that's a question for statisticians, historians, economists, etc. to figure out. Yeah, and definitely it could be based on zip code. Let's just say this certain ethnic group lives in this area and they live there and they're because they have a really school or they don't go to school yeah, or yeah. whatever. I mean, there's numerous yeah. reasons why I get it. All right. Question three. Why do you think the number of Americans on food stamps exceeds the entire population of Spain? Uh, well, if you make a uh, if you make food stamps available to people, I guess they're going to take advantage of them. Um, it's not something that I've given a great load of thought to, but I suppose that there's some people who are benefiting from receiving the food stamps, both the shop owners who are eligible to receive them and the people who receive them from the government, and they form a voting block or a lobbying block. And it's uh, there's a term in economics called concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Right. The costs to the entire population of America of the food stamps program is probably small enough that they're not campaigning to get the food stamps taken away, but it really does make a difference to those who are receiving the food stamps so they can fight tooth and nail to make sure that they get those benefits forever. Right on. Question four. How would a stateless society handle bankruptcy laws? And how do you think they would Ooh. be enforced? Now, that is, uh, that's definitely a theoretical question. I'd say that it would vary, very vastly from one area to another, one geographical area to another. But I guess you'd contract um, depending on where you live to what right. the consequences would be beforehand. And uh, hopefully, in most cases, you would have voluntarily contracted to what those conditions were. Maybe if you were bankrupt, you'd go to a, a bank or a financial institution and say, 
holler, I'm bankrupt, I need a bailout. <laughs> right. And they would um, make you sign a contract given what they thought you were going to be able to do to pay them back for saving your ass. There you go. Question five. Can socialism ever work within the confines of a free market libertarian society? If not, why are there so many socialists infiltrating the libertarian movement? Um, probably not. Because of the pricing problem, I guess people could move together in a commune. People are entitled to voluntarily enter into socialist systems of housing, I suppose. But I think fundamentally the purpose of socialism is not to tax the socialists, but to tax the people who are, who've got lots of money, which is why voluntary socialism doesn't work. Because actually they want to go after people with high incomes and high amounts of wealth that would never voluntarily con contract to being part of their socialist society. Yeah, and also the fact that I always like to bring this up, they don't respect property rights. That's another thing. I mean, even though you do and I do, they wouldn't. They would try to steal from us constantly. And that's another thing I like to point out. Question six. Historically, communists are intolerant of people who do not adhere to their ideology. Should libertarians be tolerant of them? And if so, why? Well, it's really context dependent. What do you mean tolerant? Do you mean should you defer? Should you not be friends with socialists? Or do you mean you should uh, put them in a helicopter? I mean, sometimes I wish I had a magic wand. Okay, so that uh, okay. I could... let's just say, let's just say helicopter. Let's just do it. Helicopter. Should we? Uh, do you know what? Uh, I don't think it's. I don't think it's politically expedient to <laughs> to um, helicopter socialists. Although, you know, if we can just drop them off and you know drop drop all the socialists off in Denmark, maybe they'll be happy there. All the communists, drop them off in Cuba, or Venezuela, and uh, etc. Maybe everyone can live in the geographical area that meets their own politics. Um, yeah. Yeah, we can hope that that'll stop them trying to force us. That's at gunpoint right. to adhere right. to their political ideas. Right, all man. Question seven. Is there a moral obligation to help the less fortunate? And if so, what is it? What dollar amount is it? Uh, I've got a show called um, Social Responsibility, Truth and Fiction, and I, check, I, I recommend people check it out on YouTube. It was a good show. Uh, and what I would say is no, you do not have a duty to help the poor. It's uh, this David Hume's, uh, how do you get an ought from an is? Just because there are, poor, unless you made them poor, if your violent actions made them poor, then you do have a responsibility to help them. But it's just a coincidence of nature. You don't have any responsibility. However, I do believe that contributing to the well-being of others is a psychological need for psychologically healthy human beings. And it is beneficial for right. people to find ways to help others that are less fortunate than themselves. So no, you don't have an obligation to. Obligation makes things ugly. If you broke your leg and I came to the hospital and I said, you know, Johnny, I didn't really feel like coming here, but as your collaborator, I felt it was my responsibility mm -hmm. to come and see you. You wouldn't be very flattered. So responsibility makes things ugly. Doing things voluntarily is a very beautiful thing. I agree. I agree, man. Question eight. If a family is hungry and they have no other way to get food, is it okay to steal food from the rich person who owns the store? Well, you know, this is one of these traps that social. No, no, I, I'm not using it to trap you. I'm just doing. I it. know. Yeah, I'm going to get. I'm going to give you a decent answer to the question because it assumes that there's only two answers: either you steal 
or you don't. You can go to that shop owner and you can explain your situation. And I actually knew people who just went from house to house and because they didn't have any money, they would often go to shops and say, hey, look, we're just, um, you know, we're, we're just travelers. Uh, have you got anything left over that we can have? And they'd usually get food. But uh, last case scenario, you know, you go to the papers and you say, are you kidding me? Can you not see that my wife is pregnant and starved to death? I would go to the papers and tell everyone what an that you wouldn't give me any food for my starving wife. Um, there's never stealing is never in this society the only the only other I'm option. With you. I'm with but you. I would I would say that you know desert island scenarios, lifeboat scenarios are not really indicative of how we as people should live in a situation of choice because morality applies to situations where people have a choice. And when people do not have any choice, they will just do whatever. And you're never gonna you're never gonna stop them from doing that. If you if it was me or your wife, I think you would stab me in the eye as soon as anything. Uh, you know, that that's just the way or you mean your starving baby. That's mm-hmm. just people people in extreme circumstances revert to barbarism. But that does not invalidate libertarianism because libertarianism supposes liberty, presupposes liberty. Very Good answer, dude. Really love the answer. Question nine. In a free society, how should our public deal with criminals? Do you think we would have jails? And if so, if they were captured, wouldn't that be considered kidnapping? The interesting thing about that is we don't actually know exactly because the trial and error hasn't been done. You know, we know what a really excellent phone looks like because there's been lots of trial and error and making phones and people have tried different things. Right. Uh, personally, I'm from I'm for restorative justice. I think the best system is one where criminals have to pay back victims. And I think I don't think it's necessarily kidnapping because if you get a job or if you get a house and you join the housing association to live as part of society, people are going to want to contract with you and they're going to want to get you to sign a contract that says if you commit this crime, at the very least, you're going to lose your job or you're going to lose your mortgage or you can't rent my you can't rent my apartment if you're a criminal, etc. So you will have signed contracts and you will have agreed beforehand to see a judge or to see a body if you commit a crime. You might have even agreed to the death sentence. I personally am for the death sentence, but I accept that in a free society, people might people might carry that out. It's not up to me. So I think Murphy did a good podcast on pacifism and how he thinks that free market societies would probably not use violence they'd use violence as little as possible because it's costly to use violence. The best thing to do is to um, create a situation. In my opinion, if you're a criminal, you're allowed to go to any prison, let's call it prison, it might not be a prison, that is willing to have you. And that creates an incentive for each of those prisons to bid for criminals and find ways to make them work to pay off their debts. Because, um, and if you're really well behaved, you'll be able to go to a prison where you can do a job that'll make you lots of money quickly. Maybe you'll get some training. And if you're badly behaved, well, you just might get a room somewhere and a bowl of gruel once a day because no other prison's willing to have you. Interesting. Interesting. Really interesting idea. Question 10. To what extent does justice and injustice differ from fairness and unfairness? Is your own personal concept of morality similar to one or the other? 
justice and injustice Mm -hmm. and fairness and unfairness, they both seem like quite arbitrary terms. We've all got a sense of justice and a sense of fairness. Um, I I, I like kind of Milton Friedman was asked on the word deserve. He says, how do you really say who deserves what? You know, I might not believe in the death sentence. You think that guy does believe in the death sentence, for example. I think as libertarians, we are on firmer ground talking about what people should be entitled to. Do you deserve to have been born in America? You could have just as easily been born in the Congo or something like that. Lord knows, okay? It's just good luck at the end of the day. Should you be entitled to the fruit of your labor? We could say, well, I mean, it's your labor. It's a consequence of your actions. So you're entitled to it. Do you deserve it? Is it fair that you get it? Right. Lord knows, you know, that really all depends on your definition of fear and uh, of justice. Right on, and that's rock and fire. Give it up for Anthony Semperoff. Bam! Good job, brother. Dude, wow. nailed that Nailed it out of the park, man. Great job. Those were much harder questions than last time. Well, you're a pro now, so, you Yeah, know. you're a pro. I was, I was throwing you some softballs, and now there's some <laughs> balls in there, but you kicked ass. Good job. Anyways, so it's Johnny Rocket. We're talking to Anthony Samaroff. We're going to take a quick commercial break. we got more of him coming up, so stick around. Rock and roll. Anthony Samaroff. Hey, man, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're having just a great time with you, and you kicked ass on that goddamn rocket mm. fire, dude. Seriously, mm-hmm. good job. I'm having a great time, too. Awesome, dude. Awesome. Raylene, take it away. Okay, so I have been researching about where is UBI implemented and what's going on in these other countries that are everyone's promoting using UBI. And, it's, and it seems like that there might not be a valid argument that true UBI implementation has even been tried, right? So I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the different experiences from whether it's the situation in Alaska with sharing oil revenue or Finland and the experiment, how they're not showing the jobs yet. And they say they can't finish the experiment until 2020. Or and where are we at with all that going around the world? Yeah, Okay, I address this a bit in my book, uh, Nudge, Nudge, Wink, Wink. Yeah, of course. In his book. It will equip you to deal with all these arguments. So the interesting thing about these experiments is they're not really that valid, even though some some of them say that they're good evidence for the Mm -hmm. UBI, even though they never managed to generate job growth. You didn't see a significant drop-off in work either, and people say people were much happier getting the UBI, so that's an argument for the UBI. But look, I would be much happier if every day someone went to one of my neighbor's house and picked up an item from their house and brought it round to my house. Uh, and you, and I'd also look a lot richer as well because every day there'd be something in my house that wasn't in my house yesterday. The problem is all of my neighbors are getting poorer because you're taking an item out of their, their house. And the thing is with these experiments, 
the population who is being taxed to pay for the UBI wasn't the same as the population receiving the UBI. So it's not a valid analogy to instituting a UBI nationwide. The second point is whenever they've run experiments, the population receiving the UBI has known they're only going to be receiving the payments for however long the experiment is. Mm -hmm. Now, that will inspire them to make different choices. Supposing the three of us got a UBI this month, we'd go like, hey guys, let's party, let's get a ton of booze, you know, maybe some strippers and stuff like that. we would. And we're just going to party it up because, do you know what, we're only going to get our UBI again next month. And next month will come, we've been partying for a whole month together and we said, you know what, I just really need to chill this month. I'm so hungover from right. all that partying. That's a long but, hangover. You know, That's a yeah, long yeah. hangover. Yeah. YOLO for Yang Gang. YOLO <laughs> for Yang Gang. Okay, go on. <laughs> so so we're gonna we're gonna party and then we're gonna relax and then we're gonna think one of these days, I swear to God, I'm gonna spend my UBI on starting a new business. But we're not time limited to do it because we know that we're always gonna get it again and again and again. Whereas these people on the experiments knew they were only going to get it for a short period of time. So they had more incentive to use it quickly to invest in a business or to try and pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Right. Interesting. And isn't it also also done with just unemployed people when it's supposed to be to working people and unemployed people and to show the, how the, the ecosystem of how that would work? Well, one of the problems with the UBI is it's non-discriminatory. So you're going to be giving a basic income to computer game addicts. You're going to be giving a basic income to drug addicts, gambling addicts, and things like that, completely indiscriminately. You're actually making their lives worse. Hmm. You might be making their deaths worse Hmm. by by contributing to those habits. Interesting. So this is is a problem that we should talk about as humanitarians. Really quick, uh, last question. In your book, you discuss like the negative stuff about UBI, but you also talk about the positives of it. What are yeah. some of the positive positions of UBI and, and actually having the UBI system? So, I mean, the, yeah, we've discussed like sure. yeah, the negatives outweighed the positives, but what are some of the positives? Yeah, I mentioned a couple of them at the beginning of the show. I'll try and mention someone I haven't mentioned before. One is that it would acknowledge the work of people who volunteer or home workers, homemakers, that um, they spend a lot of their time uh, looking after uh, people or looking after children, uh, and they're they're not monetarily acknowledged for that. Um, Some people say it could reduce government outgoings on law enforcement if it leads to a drop in crime that's driven by poverty. People say that people would be significantly less stressed if they felt like even if they lost their job, they would go hungry. It could make money available for people to retrain. If they're not happy with their job, they could get new skills. It would maybe, they say, encourage entrepreneurship by giving people the security of being able to take the risk of becoming self-employed. Now, one thing I would say about that is it's not necessarily a good thing if people have got the money to risk on starting a business, if they're not um, qualified to start a business, because it might be a waste of resources if they just produce something that no one wants. The whole point of having an investor is investors are like uh, experts or they're meant to be experts at deciding who to give their limited funds to, who's got a good idea for a business, who's likely to succeed in that business. So I do make counter arguments in the book against some of these arguments. 
people think it might improve the work environment for employees if people have got, you know, FU money, if they say, well, you know, if my employer is a can just walk out the door. Right. So employers might have a tendency to be better to their staff and reform hostile or unpleasant environments. From the conservative side, people think that we could get rid of uh, unnecessary regulations and labour laws. As I said, I'm sceptical as to whether that might happen in real life. And also from the conservative side, they say, well, if people are rich enough to say provide um, pay for their own health insurance, we won't need Medicare or Medicaid, for example, or we might actually be able to get rid of some government programs. Again, I'm skeptical about that. But certainly the, the, the fact is that a lot of people think that um, we're going down the road of socialism and central planning. I'm with you. So the main mm-hmm. the main free market argument for the UBI is, well, at least it preserves the market economy. Instead of having the government buy services and goods for people, you're at least putting that money in people's hands and then they can go out and spend them. Now, the great thing about buying this book is it's going to familiarize you with all of the arguments I could possibly find trawling the internet and other sources for the UBI. I I summarize them and I also make counter arguments to a bunch of them. So I think you'll definitely feel like you're an expert on UBI after reading the short book. Oh yeah, one more. Uh, You might not necessarily like this, but one of the arguments floated out is it removes the stigma of poor people being just seen as parasites and welfare queens if everyone is getting equal treatment, if everyone is getting a payout. Well, that means everyone's getting a payout, including billionaires who might not necessarily need a payout. Um, And also, yeah, Many of them are also uh, welfare queens who've uh, right. received <laughs> huge, amounts, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, huge yeah. amounts of corporate welfare, huge handouts. There are huge government handouts to Google. I think something like six hundred and fifty billion uh, to Amazon to all to many big corporations have had government handouts. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, Raylene, prepare for landing. Oh, Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Anthony Samaroff, give us your dot com, sir. Yeah, check out Scottish Liberty Podcast on iTunes. And also, if you're into personal development, Be Yourself and Love It Podcast, they should be available on most podcasting apps. Awesome. Hey, man, thank you so much for being here. You know, I learned a lot. And uh, you sent me the book ahead of time early, so I, you know, looked through it. I didn't peruse it because when you actually use that word, it means you actually studied it, you know, very uh, I, di- I didn't. I didn't have enough time to do it because you you sent it from Scotland. So it was it took forever. Um, but I do want to say thank you so much for that. And I did read your book through PDF, though. So it was cool. And thank you for sending that to me. But seriously, dude, I, I learned so much about the UBI from your perspective. I know you're you're solid on that stuff and you're, and you're good. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here on the show. And Raylene, if people want to hear more of Mr. Samaroff, what do they do? Yeah. What do they do? If, if you want to hear questions that he answers when he's put on Blast by our listeners, then uh, I highly suggest that you go to supportblastoff.com and subscribe. If you give us a dollar an episode, you get to hear Anthony's awesome answers. And for $2, you get to hear the all-nighter also. And that's just me and you bullshit and talking about current topics. And it's it's really enjoyable. So, again, thank you guys so much. This is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas. We'll see you next week, episode 50 with Ron Paul, rock and roll. (laughs) 